Hallelujah, 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 amen. What a blessing to be able to rejoice with you and worship with you uh, and do what we will do in glory, rejoicing unceasingly in the presence of that Christ who has loved us and given himself for us. As we come this morning to consider the word of God, would you open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The subject matter this morning that I was assigned, and I've, it's been entitled, The Loving Glory of the Father. Uh, as I uh, uh, thought about that, I, I might call it communion with the Father. And that's really what I want to focus on, communion with the Father. If I even would make another title, titles really don't mean much, but they uh, at least maybe define sometimes, I would call it the condescending glory uh, of the Father. The Son himself condescended out of glory for the sake of our souls, and the Father himself, in a certain sense, condescends, condescends that holy creator that we might be his children, condescends to be the father of his creation. And so I want us to consider communion with the Father. The focus this, uh, these last several days has been on the Father himself, and we're focusing on him. And so that's where I want to go as we consider the scriptures. Let me re- pray, and, and we'll read. Father, thank you. Thank you for the praises that fill our hearts and remind us of the truth over which we ought to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory as we consider who you are and who you sent and who indwells us that we might have our eyes opened, our hearts stirred, Lord, our wills driven and our souls lifted up before you. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you that we can come this morning now and consider your truth to us. Oh, Father, we need your truth. We need your spirit. Will you guide us? Will you encourage us? Will you draw us near in living, loving communion with you? Through your Son, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, John says, using verbs themselves that speak of the ongoing reality of that experience, that which we saw and still is emblazoned before our eyes, our faith's eyes, that which we heard which is still echoing in our own minds, that which our hands have handled, the touch which we have, the the reality of this incredible experience and this word of life concerning the word of life And the life was manifested. And we have seen and we bear witness and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That very eternal life which we ourselves have sang about uh, in our songs of praise by which we can approach the Father. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also with this purpose that you may have fellowship with us, 
that by faith embracing that one whom we've seen and whom now you behold by faith, that you may have koinonia, partnership, sharing with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. J.I. Packer said, To know God's love is heaven indeed on earth. And that is a reality that uh, I want to open up uh, a little, uh, and uh, I believe Anthony will open up much more. But what I want to deal with is that statement that John says in verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father. The reality is, is that we have fellowship with the triune God. We have fellowship with the Father, we have fellowship with the Son, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, outlines that quite in detail. Fellowship with the Father is in love. The fellowship with the Son is by grace. The fellowship with the Spirit is in comfort. And he opens up those things quite marvelously and wonderfully. And so that task fell upon me to open up that first aspect of fellowship with the Father. As I began, as I spoke on Friday night, looking at the distinctives of that Father, one of those distinctives is that our ultimate praise and prayer and thanksgiving and worship ascends to the Father. For the Son himself has come to bring us to him. And so we often think of communion with the Son, which is absolutely correct and right and good and enjoyable. But what I want to focus on is what I would call that communion with the Father the, the, of the Godhead. This, this Father who is our Father. And now, uh, as we consider that, I'm not speaking of an ordinance of the church. We're not talking about the communion that way. I'm not speaking of some kind of communion, a mystical existence connected with transcendence. I'm talking about the reality of our uh, boots-on-the-ground living with regard to our relationship and our communion with the Father. And so in terms of speaking about this, as we speak about communion, I'm speaking about a relationship of mutual sharing, a relationship of mutual joy. That's the idea. This is that koinonia. It, It is that sharing. It denotes a near and dear relationship in which there is a mutual and joyful giving and receiving. That's what I'm speaking about, us giving, receiving from the Father and giving back to the Father and sharing uh, in this communion together. And so, as I present it here, uh, I am speaking of God the Father's gracious communication and glad giving of himself to us, and our grateful and glad giving of ourselves and all we are to him. That is simply what I'm speaking about in communion. God's gracious giving to us and our grateful giving to him of ourselves. And so I want to open this up under four headings, speaking of communion. And uh, uh, I want to speak of the basis of communion. The basis of communion, and simply it is this, it's God's grace. Why is it that we are able to have fellowship with God? It is because God is gracious. 
And then I want to deal secondly with what I would call the character of that communion. The character of that communion. And that is really that we are his children. We enjoy communion as his children. And then third, I want to deal with what I would call the dynamic of that communion. And that dynamic is divine love. And then I want to speak about the expression of that communion, which is simply our love in return and how we express that. And so those are the, those are the headings, if you want to keep them in mind. It will be, in some nature, I hope, simple and begin with that first aspect, the basis of our communion. I call it a new and gracious relationship, the basis of our communion with the Father is on the basis of His grace. It is the Father's loving and gracious initiative to us. Before we believed the gospel, for me that was 26 years of my life, before we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and saw God's glory in His face, our relationship with God was basically non-existent. And if we had any relationship to God, it was not a relationship of peace. It was not a relationship of forgiveness. We ourselves were under the condemnation and judgment of God rightly because of our own sinfulness, because of our own selfishness, because of our own self-righteousness, because of our own unbelief in that great God. We ourselves could only anticipate from Him His judgment and His rightful condemnation, which was His own divine wrath against us, because we had no regard for Him. We did not acknowledge Him or give Him thanks. Communion was the last thing on our minds. The approach to God was the last thing in our minds. And if there was anything we wanted from God, it was that He would be our cosmic bellhop is we would ring the bell that he would come and take care of our perceived needs, which often had no relationship to the need of forgiveness of sins. Our status was not a good status at all. We were ourselves enemies. We ourselves were sinners. We ourselves were hopeless and helpless. We had no relationship with our God. And in the face of all of that... In the face of all of that, God on his own initiative, by his own purpose and will from before the beginning, determined that he would manifest his effectual and special love to us, undeserving, ill-deserving, unworthy ones, by sending his only son to save our souls from his divine wrath. Jesus Christ became the sin-bearer. Jesus Christ became the guilt bearer. Jesus Christ became ground zero of the holy wrath of God that we might become ground zero of the everlasting mercies of God to our souls. This is the greatness of God. He sent his son into the world, 1 John 4, that we might live through him. That we who were dead in trespasses and sins, living in darkness and nature's night, ourselves might now live for the first time, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
He sent his son, his own unique eternal son, the son of his love, to assume our nature, be obedient as our substitute, to be the propitiation for our sins, to be, as it were, the very eye of the hurricane of the wrath of God, or to receive the wrath of God, that we ourselves might come into that favor with God. The Sometimes I, the analogy I think of is, is this God is a, is a hurricane of holiness and he will wipe away all that is unholy and destroy it. And that would be any sinner again. For the only thing that he hates in all the universe, the only thing that he abhors in all the universe is not poverty, it's not sickness, it's not weakness, it's sin. It's man devoted to himself and ignorant of God. And that holy hurricane will wipe away everything. The book of Nahum speaks about it, like the mountains themselves melting and the seas themselves being dried up. Who can stand before his wrath? And yet he says, there is a refuge with thee. And that refuge is the Son of God who came into that hurricane and who drank up through his own sacrifice and swallowed up all of the divine wrath of God himself. And now in the middle of that hurricane, what is there? There is an eye. There is an eye of peace. There is a place of safety. And in the eye of the hurricane, in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the holiness of God which threatened to destroy us is now a wall of salvation around us. We hide in the Savior. It is all by the grace of God. It is all by the purpose and mercy of God that we ourselves are able to rest in this eye, even today, that we can sing, that we can have the anticipation of the favor and goodness and kindness of God. Uh, what mercies, what mercies. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He spared him not. He ran over the back of his son that he might claim us. His son was crushed that we might be embraced, forsaken that we might be forgiven. This is the mercy of the gospel. But that gospel rides out of and flows out of the purpose and will of the Father of whom we've been speaking about these past several days. Don't forget the Father as you are in the midst of the hurricane and enjoying the peace and favor and kindness of God. These words, as Calvin said, this idea of that salvation, it says, these things ought to ravish our minds. They ought to ravish our minds with the goodness and greatness and glory of God. By faith, by faith in that son, by faith in that sacrifice that satisfied God's divine wrath, we ourselves are brought into vital spiritual, personal union with Christ. And in that union, we are crucified to the world. We are made alive to God. Our sins are forgiven. We are pardoned. We have peace, justification of sin. All of those wonderful blessings by His doing, that is, God's doing, you are in Christ. Don't forget the Father who put you in that Son who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All the glory, all the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit 
He loved us. We're justified. And Jesus did all of this, we're told by Peter, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to whom? To the Father. And so as I speak about communion, you understand that the Father sent the Son that he might bring us to himself. That the very aim of salvation is to bring us to the Father. And so the the gift of the Son and the peace and the pardon, the righteousness and everything that we needed to, to avoid the hurricane of wrath and now to have the hurricane of mercy around us is that we might come to him. And so communion is not something that should be foreign to us in terms of our own experience of grace that we ourselves would seek that Father who has saved us through his Son. I realize I'm speaking specifically again about the Father, but that's what we're talking about. And in fact, he is the supreme head, as it were, in the Godhead. And we do no, we do no disservice to, to the Son and to the Father by saying these kinds of things. But union, faith establishes our relationship with God forever. We are secured forever in that faith union, tied to Jesus Christ and all of the blessings and benefits which he gives to us. That establishes our communion. This is stable. Union is stable. It won't be broken apart. This being brought into this relationship is something that is as as, as stable as God is stable, as eternal as God is eternal, as strong as God is strong. This union will not be broken and cannot be broken. And so it is on this foundation that I begin. It is the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ that is the basis of our communion. That is the enjoyment and sharing of that blood-bought relationship with God. So that's the beginning. Union. It will never be removed. That relationship will never be destroyed. And, we, and so we begin with that. It doesn't, it doesn't grow. That the enjoyment of this relationship with God may grow. It may ebb and flow. We'll speak about that. But the relationship and reality of it is as certain as the, seal, as the blood of the Savior and the sealing of the Spirit. That's the first point. I want to move on to the second, communion. With regard to communion, what I would call the character of our communion. And it is this, in a near and dear relationship with the Father. A near and dear relationship with the Father. My brother is going to open this up, I think, more. In love, we're told, Ephesians 1, he predestined us, he purposed us, the Father, to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of his will. It was not just simply to get us out of his anger. It was not just simply to flee us free us from the sin that held us into bondage. He set us free and brought us into a relationship that is absolutely incredible and absolutely unique. What do we read when Jesus, I mentioned it, when we read in Luke chapter 11 and verse 2, when the disciples said, teach us to pray. And the very first thing that he told them to say is what? Father. 
Do you understand how massive that, that very statement is? Do you realize that that is, the, that is the door, that is the password to heaven, that is the password to favor, that is uh, the, the very word by which we ourselves are to come before the living, eternal, almighty, sovereign God is this, Father. This defines at the very outset of our union with Christ, the very character of how we ourselves are to relate to the living God. This defines it. This sets it in the concrete of His grace that our relationship to Him is as His own children. He is mighty God, almighty sovereign, our Father. Judge of the living and the dead, our Father, creator of the visible and invisible, the rolling spheres and the earth itself, our Father. Everything that you can say about Him that is true, our holy, holy, holy Father. And this is what we need to think about with regard to our relationship with God, the very nature and character of that, that adoption that we enjoy and which I, I think my brother will probably speak about and fill out so at a, uh, extraordinarily. We were both lamenting, it seems we're, we're going to overflow in what we're going to say about it. And I said, well, the overflow is good. I need the overflow. My little brain just kind of, it outflows, and I, so I need it getting back in all the time. And so it's, uh, I need it. But we have a new and privileged status. And this is now our primary relationship with God. The nearest and best relationship with the greatest of beings. The creatures, the sinful, weak, out of the dust creatures now in relationship. Purchased dearly and costly by God's own son. Now his children Father, that's what he is to us. He's our holy father, our wise father, our righteous father, our kind and generous father, our majestic, mighty, and merciful father. And I read someplace, one said, when you have prayed, Father, nothing more is needed. You've said all that is necessary for your soul. Father. And that is the way that we need to think of him it is interesting, all of this, as we think, it's as if God had said with that little word, you shall, you shall have a true interest in all of my attributes for you. How many are fathers who don't raise your hand? I know there's a lot, so I'm not going to do the hand thing. But listen, what father does not want to give everything that he possesses, everything that he has, everything that is valuable, does not want to pass it down to his own children. I mean, what good father? What, what well-minded father would say, everything that I possess, everything that I can do, I want to give to you. The father takes that relationship with us and now, in a sense, binds himself to us in that fatherly role, which even, even earthly roles themselves cannot even be compared with. All we can do is try to think of the best father and then multiply it by ten to the millionth power. There, there is no way. But he says, this is it, all of my attributes for you, they, as they are mine, 
for my glory, so I give them to you. My grace will be yours to pardon you. My power will be yours to protect you. My wisdom will be yours to direct you. My goodness will be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. My glory to be yours to crown you. This is what I am to you. I am your Father. Funny, in my own mind, you can see how weird I am. You know, I seem thinking of... Darth Vader, that I am your father, Luke. Uh, that, that's a bad scene. That's going just the opposite. No, because it's different, isn't it? This is not Darth Vader. This is not some mystical space creature. <laughs> Whatever. No, this is the living God. And there is no other being that you can even conceive or imagine except by revelation that is as good and as blessed and as wonderful that you can be in near and dear relationship than he. And this is who we are now the sons and daughters of by grace. This is his blessed, blessed goodness to us. How inviting it ought to be. Father, that means I can come at any time. Uh, you, you know, when I, when I was in the law practice and, and spending trying to prepare for a trial, then all of a sudden, you know, just had the door shut in my study, and all of a sudden, my daughter, Brittany, would just come running in and just jump on my lap. Get out of here, you little varmint. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> no, you said it was so wonderful indeed that even though the door appeared shut, she would go all in, you know, with boldness and confidence entering into the throne of dad. And that is the reality is that father in begs us, invites us. He does not take this relationship with us to hold us at a distance. This, is a, this, is this, this very relationship, this near and dear relationship is what he wants to characterize our relationship to him to be. And the more and more that we realize that, the more that we ourselves will be inclined to do what we are called to do, and that is to commune and fellowship with Him. Not to stand at a distance and not to ooh and ogle, but to come near and draw near, as the writer to the Hebrews says three times. Draw near to call upon Him, to honor Him, to adore and seek from Him. This is the name of His condescension, but our great elevation. We're the ones lifted up by this. Lifted up that we ourselves might approach the God of glory in that blessed term. It's not a tip of the hat of a prayer. When I come to prayer, Jesus is wanting us to come with the gladness and the sense of the liberality and the generosity and the love of all that that implies. That is, that is so inviting. The chief and best relationship, and you maybe have heard this before, but I, I think about it often, near, so very near, nearer I could never be, but in the person of his son, I'm just as near as he. Dear, dearer I could never be, but in the person of his son, I'm just as dear as he. And you've got to believe that. He loves you so much that he gave the son of his love to get you. Not that you were anything, but now you're something. 
Sonship is glorious. We are as favored, as loved, and as near and dear as the Savior is. This is the character of it. This is the blessing of it. But let me go in the third point. The third point to what I call the dynamic of our communion. The dynamic of our communion, it is divine love. This communion with the Father is a communion, as Owen says, and I agree with him, it is a communion in love. You could call it the atmosphere. You could call it the activity, the nature of this relationship, and it all flows out of divine love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. Are. It, is, it is a relationship between two lovers, the one loved by the Creator and the one who loves the Creator. And yes, it's different loves in a certain way because the love of God is the love that is like God and our love often is like us. It is a contrast in terms of even those who are in this relationship, a contrast between the uncreated creator, the holy creator, and between us, the weak creature, between us who arise and fall in our affections and our devotions and our attention and are often distracted, and God himself who is rich and stable, unchanging in all of his glorious attributes toward us. But it is, an, it is a love, it is a relationship in which God himself is pleased to bestow His love and grace to us. This is the mercy of it. It says in 1 John 4.16, it says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. You say, well, yeah, that sounds really good. But then I ask you, have you believed in the love God has for you? I know it. Seems like he's saying it. Have you come to know that reality? That's that's what he himself wants us to know. That is what he wants us to believe, that love of God. Do we know and believe the gospel and know and believe the love that he has for us? Owen, in in his book on the communion with God, he says, The Father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. He, he's, he begins to speak. He says, oh, most oftentimes the saints of God have much confidence in the love of Jesus Christ for them because he gave his blood for them. They, they have no doubt about his goodwill and kindness, but what about the Father? And it's as if the Father himself is kind of the gnarly dude up there and Jesus himself is the one trying to bring about Christ's good pleasure, but do you realize, and you do know, and just reminding you, who sent the Son? It was not to change the affection of God, it was to be the demonstration of God's affection and His work for us. No, the, the Son is carrying out all of this, do we understand this? Are, are our thoughts of the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, do they go to the Father Himself who sent Him? This is, a, this is one of those things that I think sometimes happens. It, it, we, we sometimes look at the father as one who is the, the stern one in the crew. No, he's the same one. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the father. God is Christ-like. And Christ is God-like. And that is all the blessing of it. Packer 
observed correctly, he says, God's love is not the complete truth about God. It's not the complete truth as far as the Bible is concerned. Love is not all that God is. God is light, purity. God is fire, judgment. God is, God is, is, a, is a pure being, but he goes on to say, God is love. And, and again, I like this statement. I mean, it's a simple book, Knowing God. It is a great book. But he says, God is love is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. Do you dare think that? No, wait a second. I've got to think of his judgment. I've got to think of, I've got to think of holiness. Listen, if you love him, you will love holiness. If you love him and are being conformed to him, those issues, they themselves will take care of themselves. This is, this is, I think it's true here. God's love is behind everything that he has done, does, or will do for us. Everything. Everything. He has seen fit in love to make his son the treasury of the riches of his grace. He's seen fit to give us the son, not only to redeem us, but to be the very one out of which we ourselves shall live before him and enjoy his grace, his bounties, his blessings in the heavenly places. This is what the Father does. He gives us the great gift out of which every other gift flows. It all flows out of the Father's love. It's unbroken. All of what comes to us out of Christ comes out of the loving design and bounty of the Father who in the ages to come desires to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. He's not hanging over us like a vulture, not waiting to tap us on the head or knock us down when we're knuckleheads. Or we'd all be on the ground probably by now. No, this is the very character. His love is like himself. It's eternal He has loved you from the beginning, and he will love you without ending. This love is sovereign. It is discriminating. It is purposeful. The Lord himself had design, had purpose, yes, beyond us with regard to choosing you. But the thing we can be confident of, it wasn't anything about us. But he himself saved us because he willed it and loved it. That's what he does. His love is effectual. His love is immutable. It doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As hot as his love was when he sent his son to to here on our behalf, as hot as his love was when he sent his son to the cross, as hot as his love was as his fierce Fierce wrath was spent against the Son, as hot as his love was when he raised the Son from the dead and exalted him to the highest place at his right hand. So hot, so earnest, so intense, so purposeful is his love to us now, the fathers. There isn't, there isn't any decline in his love. It is, it is infinite love, and it will never, ever end. It's immutable. It's like himself. In Psalm 27, David begins to recognize this. My father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. My God is more gracious than even human love, more faithful than even human affection. 
Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her youth? I would say not. I can't imagine that. But even these may forget, and we know that, but I will not forget you. And when he says, I do not forget you, it means he doesn't put you like a peg on the wall and some kind of nameless star. Well, they're all named now. But, but he knows you, and he knows you precisely, personally, and purposely, every single one of you in his bonds in Christ. There is no father more affectionate, more loving, more devoted, more merciful, more compassionate, more understanding, more sympathetic, tender-hearted than our divine father. Now dare we, in light of those things, say, I don't know if I can come near. I don't know if I ought to approach him. I don't know if my relationship ought to be changed with the way that I think about him. But God's design is that we ourselves would so esteem him and be so confident of his love that we would carry out point four of my outline. I think that's where I'm at. Let me see. Well, I've got more to say, but uh, I'll, I'll uh, well, I have to say it. Well, I don't have to say it. <laughs> I don't have to say it, but I will anyway. <laughs> no. We don't come to one who is determined to keep his distance from us. We came to one who did everything to bring us near. We're not going to find, we're not going to find one like us, small-hearted, one easily offended, whose affections will often collapse into the black hole gravity of our own selfishness. We find one who is full-hearted toward us, one who eternally set his affection upon us to embrace us as his dearly purchased and loved possession. His is a love that will not let us go. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk of earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure, the saints' and angels' song. Point four. The expression of our communion. And I call it loving Him. It's loving Him. What God loves us for and seeks from us is the return of affections. The return of our own hearts. This is what eternal love aims to produce, our love to Him. We love because He first loved us. That was His design. He fills us and he gives us grace to do that. He gives us the grace by opening our minds and understandings to the beauty of his holiness. We don't love him for nothing, right? Isn't he worthy of all love? I mean, do we have to make arguments why we ought to love the Father? In terms of all that he is, all that he is able to do, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, mindful of all those things we aren't, and yet he himself, through his son, by his grace, out of his love, has embraced us that we might come to him and enjoy his love, loving him. 
This is, the, this, is the, this is the natural, supernatural return that God's grace gives and the Spirit would put into our own hearts. To love the Lord our God with all our soul, our mind, our strength. And this is what he delights in. And when we see the Father more as that one of love, then, then it will be manifested. How is love shown? How is it shown? Jonathan Edwards in treatise concerning religious affections he observes that in our human relationships, those whom we love, to aim, we love, we aim to honor and please. And we desire and we delight in their company. Now that gives you a good definition of what I'm talking about, the return that we are to make. That we delight to honor him and adore him. And our desire and our delight is to be near him. And God gives us that privilege through his son. He gives us that privilege to enter into the most holy place as our high priest that we may come to that throne of grace and love the throne of our father. This is the, this is the blessing. He writes, he goes on, he says, this love says, causes a man to delight in the thoughts of God and to delight in the presence of God and to desire conformity to God. And the enjoyment of God. This is the saint's relish. In other words, to relish the supremacy and greatness of your God. Well, how does that look? Well, I'm, I want to give you just a few references out of the Psalms of what I would call communion devotion. Because that's what the Psalms are. They're the outwork, the outbreathing, the exhaling of true piety. And you will hear it, and again, and this is, I, I, I suppose in one sense it ought to encourage us, and yet it also at the same time I realize what it is, for it is always is to me, a measure of where my own heart is, and my own approach to God is. And so let it be, as it were, that, that little standard uh, that would set the measure, but listen, as a, that thing is set before us, let us not despair because of God himself, who has been so gracious to bring us near. Will he bring us near by his Son? And leave us bone dry in our affections. If I have bone dry affections, then I better be concerned whether I have been connected to the Son. Because it is out of the Son and the grace of the Son that I myself now love the Father. But what we do know, and, and we know full well, that our love is nothing like His. It's imperfect. Marked by fits and starts. Marked by distractions. I mean, can you imagine it? that I can be distracted by the Los Angeles Dodgers from my God or my failing Notre Dame football team. Now, I'm just telling you, you know what? I'm glad my idols get crushed all the time. I just let them crush, let them crush, because I'm such a distracted being. But here, listen, listen to those who, in their own frailty... Express what I think again, what this devotion itself is manifested, Psalm 16. And just, I'm just going to read some of the words there. I said to the Lord, Psalm 16, 2, I said to the Lord, that Lord in whom I take refuge, thou art my Lord, I have no good besides you. You mean everything is bad? No, not necessarily, but compared to the living God, he is the best and only good I have. I've got to think, if he is the best and only good, then I'm going to be going after him, isn't it? 
Yes, that, that, that's true. Notice, he, what, as he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance, my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My inheritance is beautiful. Where did that all come from? It came from God by His grace, the Father. I have set the Lord continually before me. Like Mary at the foot of Jesus, so is David now at the foot of his God. I set him continually before me. He's on my mind. He's on my thoughts. He's in my focus. Even as I live and move and have my being in terms of all that I do, he is the focus. He is ever before me. He's the supreme object. It's a, he's, not a, he's, not a, he's not the subject matter of a short text. You know, it seems like that's the way we conduct relationships nowadays and sometimes with God the same way. My wife does, she texts like that. I go, mm, mm, mm. And then she just says, call me. But sometimes, sometimes again, that, that's what we do with God. Just, I'm just going to send a rapid text up. Listen, I don't have any problem with those kinds of prayers. But the reality is, communion with God does not, it's not a three-minute stand or a text message. It's not, it's not just simply a slot in the day. No, this is, I'm coming because He is who makes my day. He is the God who has given me life and breath. I come to Him, I live and breathe because He is at my right hand, conscious of closeness, David says. I will not be shaken and my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Psalm 27, David again and we find him in this Psalm 27 form. Some of you have probably memorized this. One thing I ask. This is all I want in my life. That I shall seek. I want it. But I don't think I want it that much. No, not, not, not David. This is what I seek. This is what I want. He says. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Oh, that sounds boring. No, it isn't, because he says to behold the beauty, the excellence, the glory, the greatness of my Lord, and to meditate in his temple. Man, I don't got time for that. For this one he did. This was the preeminent desire and passion of his soul. This was the one thing above all things that he desired. The beauty of the Lord, the excellence of his God, was the gravity, the, the great sun around which he himself felt himself drawn. This was the preoccupation. That I shall seek all the days of my life. It's perpetual. It's continual. And his desire resolve leads to reaction. God said, seek my face. And when you said it, I went after you. My heart said, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. That's communion. The privilege of this, the privilege of this communion will be esteemed and will be aspired after as much as we esteem the one who has loved us. Psalm 63, I think commo commotion devotion, I was going to say communion devotion. 
Communion devotion is expressed probably, I think it explodes in Psalm 63, a most incredible psalm of a soul just taken up fully with God. And again, it's David, oh God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee early, earnestly. My soul is thirsty for you. My flesh yearns for you. It's as if I am in a place where there is no water. I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. I've seen you. I've understood you in certain measures. I've been able to get glimpses of you out of your truth. And now I want more of you. That's where I'm at. This is where he's at. Because your loving kindness is better than life. He's convinced of the love of God for him. And that loving kindness which he is convinced about. He has also put it in the scales. It's better than life itself. That's why Paul could say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But this is it for him. Life is dear but God's love is dearer. My my life is transient and passing, but your love is everlasting. Your favor is the greatest gift and joy of my life. And my life indeed will be laid on the line and laid out, as it were, as a result of that love. Those who are convinced of the love of God are the greatest laborers and servants. Those who are full of the, of the knowledge of his favor and kindness, the falling of the lines, how he is determined, trusting and relying on him, full of love and affection for the Father, are the most active and faithful servants of God. Not necessarily in the big way, sometimes in the, obviously, sometimes in the very silent ways. In the pedestrian ways, in the, in the ways of a mama herself just living to love her husband, living to take care of her children. Children themselves now so devoted to the living God that they themselves can live in faithful submission to their parents and faithful fathers themselves willing to get up from the chair and help the wife with the dishes. These are the things that God... This is what this produces. Notice what he says. This, all of this, my temporal existence is nothing compared to your everlasting love. My, because it's, my lips will praise you because it's my life. It's better than self-preservation. And he won't dictate how that life is to be given, how to be spent, as long as it's spent for the pleasure and glory of God. And then he goes on. He says, I, when I remember thee on my bed, I can't sleep at night. I meditate on you in the night watches. You've been my help. My soul clings to thee. This is the attitude. This is the perspective. And then finally just going to Psalm 73 and I'll be done with the measuring rod. And it's not a rod to beat you on the head. No, listen, isn't it sometimes when you read these things, don't you desire it? Don't you, as you read those, that's what I want my heart to be. Don't you find your heart agreeing with the affirmations that these saints are saying? And don't you want that these things would be realized in you and not fall into the despair because God himself will give you the grace to do this. It's something to to aspire to, as it were. Not something to despair of, but we could multiply all of these. But, but again, Asaph, in the midst of his brutish devotion and envy of the wicked and all their prosperity, says, I came into the temple and I got into a right mind. And when he was in his right mind, oh boy, it was a great and good right mind. 
Listen to what he says when he got into his right mind, when his heart was embittered as he saw, as it were, the prosperity and peace and, and even the death of the wicked. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. No, if I'm in heaven, I'm distracted by you. If I'm on earth, I'm distracted by you. That's all I want. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all of those who are unfaithful and unbelieving to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And if the nearness of God is your good, then you will be loving to be near Him. You'll be loving to seek Him in prayer. You'll be willing to praise Him with all of the fullness of your being. You'll be, you'll be willing to lay bare all the concerns and issues of your soul. You will be willing to commune with Him. To be willing to exercise a faithful confidence in Him all the days of your life. This is what we desire. This love flows from the knowledge of God. It's informed by the Scriptures, illuminated by the Spirit it's the God himself who would seek to stir our souls. So how will I get that? Come to the Bible. This is where he reveals himself. This is where his beauty is displayed. And mine it out like Moses. Oh Lord, show me your glory. As I open the pages of the truth, let me see the beauty of your excellence. Let me see those, the, the beauty of your grace the beauty of your power, the beauty of your holiness, the beauty of your ways, that I myself may be filled by your spirit with the love of you. Now, I have to say, and will say it, what are we conscious of? How often our affections are weak. How often our communion itself is often feeble Isaac Watts expressed his own sorrow. Dear Lord, shall we forever live at this poor dying rate? Our love so faint, so cold to thee and thine to us so great? I mean, I don't think we can help but feel that. We're just but flesh. But God gives his grace. Because that's what he bought us for. That we ourselves might come to him. In the exercise of our own love, our own supernatural grace-given love and affection, and live for his glory. May God give us that grace to enjoy communion with the Father. Our Father, our Father, our dear, holy, and righteous Father, we thank you for the riches of your own person, and the riches of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to love you more and more, to commune with you better than we have, and Lord, to trust and look to you in all we do. We love you, O Lord, with our small hearts. Increase them, enlarge them, for the glory of your own name. In Jesus' name, amen.